Hello everyone, this is Lisa Colon-Delay, and I am the host of Spark My Muse. This is Soul School, Lesson 237, Rest Stop. Today I am celebrating with many people the 24th Poet Laureate of the United States, Ada Limon. This announcement came on July 12th of 2022, and Ada Limon is the author of six books of poetry, including The Carrying, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Poetry. Her new book of poetry, The Hurting Kind, is out now from Milkweed Editions. Limon is also a fellow podcast host of the critically acclaimed poetry podcast called The Slowdown. Ada describes poetry this way. It offers no advice, no breaking news, no wisdom, no moral of the story. Instead, poetry offers connection and reciprocity, the inner and outer world colliding for one brief instant so that it's not about having answers, being right or wrong, but recommitting ourselves again to the mystery, silence, and awe of the world. She wants the Slowdown podcast to be that type of unexpected goodness for its listeners. It's brought to listeners by American Public Media in production and partnership with the Poetry Foundation. You can find out more about Ada at her website, adalimon.net. And when you go to the show notes for this episode, go to sparkmymuse.com and follow the links and you will find plenty of extras. That includes Ada Limon reading her own work, photos, other poems to read, and essential links. I also thank you for supporting my work and supporting other poets and creators, bringing goodness into the world. The first poem is called Rest Stop. Walking toward the ravine while he naps on the first rest stop picnic table, she thought about what her mother said about capacity, how we all have this capacity for acceptance. She stood now at the edge of the drop-off and practiced accepting. She accepted the plant and root, the wheat and water, the wooded rocky land, and the zipped-lipped stones, the delicate size of cars just far enough away to be pleasant. Then she practiced being accepted. This was harder. She still felt her heart was a small, flat-faced owl drugged by the daytime. She wanted to make an echo, but was unsure of what would return to her. If she could suck in the same sound she spit out, she settled on a laugh. And when it came back to her, it was like clapping and cheering, a whole crowd of singing hers, spurring her strange human attempt to not suffer. Listeners, when I, when I read and take in that section where it says that her echo came back to her as a whole crowd of singing hers, spurring on her strange human attempt to not suffer, I really enjoy that, that idea of how we comfort ourselves in times of trouble and times of confusion. The next poem is called After the Argument, the Grass Moves. And there is a kind of primal nature to this. A lot of her poetry works with nature and animals. I really appreciate it. The feather reed grass is fountaining, 
near the freshly mowed front lawn. The drought has ended for now, and the fescue is green again. The pesky crabgrass is green again, and splits into wiry tendrils in inopportune places, though we never do, or rather, it's rare. The flagrant indigo bunting spotted black widow in the cable box caught. We fought last night, me in the guest room crying because I had hurt your feelings, the ones I am so intricately attached to and when in my right mind would plant and water and sun in all the ways that make a thing grow. Would you opt to be the one hurt or the one that does the hurting? A wind shakes the cascading grass now so it looks as if there's a frantic animal inside of it. I can imagine its sharp teeth, filthy claws, a kind of trapped agony inside the matted coat. I think this is what it looks like when a nastiness takes over for no reason, when the only cage that is holding me is my own. But of course, there is no desperate animal stuck in the high grass, no animal at all. That, too, was what I brought into this world, rabid and always on my side, so only I can kill it. I especially like the attention to the inner world in this poem and this kind of wild animal quality that she apprehends talking about relationships and hurt feelings and the primalness and the wildness and the ferociousness of our emotions and the feelings of our inner world. This is really what I enjoyed confronting in my book, The Wild Land Within, and its paradoxes and the things within it that confound us, even the frightening things, I think is worth delving into those mysteries, trying to understand them more deeply, even if we don't find exact answers. The next poem I'm going to read is called Jar of Scorpions, and this relates back to her childhood. I think it's really fascinating. It shows Ada's curiosity with danger and mystery and her curiosity with confounding mysteries. Jar of Scorpions, translucent and slithering against the beige carpet, like a dozen Fugitive ideas shoved to the back of the brain's border, the ideas about hurting yourself or hurting others. They came into view, the filaments of nightmares, the stinging slop suckers, the venomous miscreants, two pedipalps grasping for prey already in the first hours of their birth. How strange to think nearly 30 years later, I see those nascent scorpions as clear as today's dead moth stuck to the screen's small squares. We did what children do with tiny and terrible things. We trapped them so we could see more closely, intimately, investigate their particular evil doing behind the thick clear glass of the mason jar. We watched how they crawled, stingers readied on top of one another, circling. Our discovery felt awful, like unearthing mortality, torture, war. We were two girls then, and despite our restless fear, we could not bring ourselves to kill them. We grew almost fond of the way they scurried against the glass, the way they became almost ours, minuscule marauders, all things of the night captured in the light's unforgiving reveal. We do not know what happened to them. 
we left the scorpions in the middle of the floor in the glass with a sign that said simply jar of scorpions this is where it ends or begins what do you want for them from here we can make it up i enjoy how she leaves that pregnant with possibility at the end these creatures that that seem to reveal mortality torture war that seem to be ready to sting circling around each other ready to kill even in their first moments of life the next poem is really interesting and for me it also touches a place in me where I feel like our lives intersect. The poem is called, The Contract Says, We'd Like the Conversation to be Bilingual. Limon, like myself, is Latina, and there is this kind of clash of cultures and expectations that Caucasian and white-centered culture appreciates in order to tokenize or to benefit from that people from Latin America or Latin American heritage come up against again and again. Speaking for myself, I'm extremely proud of my heritage and loving of it. And sometimes other people want to commodify that. It seems as though Ada captures this desire for commodification quite well. The contract says we'd like the conversation to be bilingual. When you come, bring your brownness so we can be sure to please the funders. Will you check this box? We're applying for a grant. Do you have any poems that speak to troubled teens? Bilingual is best. Would you like to come to the dinner with the patrons and sip patron? Will you tell us the stories that make us uncomfortable but not complicit? Don't read the one where you're just like us. Born to a greenhouse garden, don't tell us how you picked tomatoes and ate them in the dirt. Watching vultures pick apart another bird's bones in the road, tell us the one about your father stealing hubcaps after a colleague said that's what his kind did. Tell us how he came to the meeting wearing a poncho and tried to sell the man his hubcaps back. Don't mention your father was a teacher, spoke English, loved making beer, loved baseball. Tell us again about the poncho, the hubcaps, how he stole them, how he did the thing he was trying to prove he didn't do. This poem really reminds me of my own father. Being a brown man, a New Yorkerican really, but from heritage in Puerto Rico, he was judged a lot by what people assumed. They assumed maybe he didn't speak English. He, sp he spoke better English than Spanish. And they might assume certain things of him. Sometimes they were disgusted by that. But sometimes people enjoyed capitalizing on that or assuming their jokes were funny and accurate. It's interesting being on the receiving end of that. If you haven't been on the receiving end of that because you're from the culturally dominant group, it's a particular kind of humiliation. And the best thing you can do usually to not cause problems is just go along with it and laugh along with it, which is exactly what my father did. Now it's much more out of vogue and fashion to do those sorts of things, and people get called out on it, and there's a greater awareness. I imagine that what Ada's talking about happened a while back. 
But the point that her father made about stealing hubcaps and then trying to sell them back to the person he stole them from, in order to make a point, I wonder if that was lost on that man with the car. I wonder if when we put people in boxes that we never let them out again. I enjoy that she challenges some of those preconceived notions and she pushes back on that. The next poem I'm going to read is called The Leash. And really this one is a lot about the human condition. She uses her dog to talk about this. Ada Limon lives in Kentucky, though she's from California, and I believe she goes back and forth for teaching and, and other things in California where she hails from. The Leash. After the birthing of bombs, of forks and fear, the frantic automatic weapons unleashed, the spray of bullets into a crowd holding hands, that brute sky opening in a slate metal maw, that swallows only the unsayable in each of us what's left. Even the hidden nowhere river is poisoned orange and acidic by a coal mine. How can you not fear humanity, want to lick the creek bottom dry, to suck the deadly water up into your own lungs like venom? Reader, I want to say, don't die. Even when silvery fish after fish comes back belly up, and the country plummets into a crepidating crater of hatred. Isn't there still something singing? The truth is, I don't know. But sometimes, I swear, I hear it. The wound closing like a rusted-over garage door, and I can still move my living limbs into the world without too much pain. can still marvel at how the dog runs straight toward the pickup trucks, breaknecking down the road because she thinks she loves them because she's sure, without a doubt, that the loud, roaring things will love her back, her soft, small self, alive with desire to share her goddamn enthusiasm. Yet I yank the leash back to save her because I want her to survive forever. Don't die, I say, and we decide to walk for a bit longer, starlings high and fevered above us, winter coming to lay her cold corpse down upon this little plot of earth. Perhaps we are always hurtling our body towards the thing that will obliterate us, begging for love from the speeding passage of time. And so maybe, like the dog obedient at my heels, we can walk together peacefully, at least until the next truck comes. Mm, that's a beauty. The idea she has about how we carry on. Perhaps we are always hurtling our body towards the thing that will obliterate us, begging for love from the speeding passage of times. And so maybe, like the obedient dog at my heels, we can walk together peacefully, at least until the next truck comes. There's something risky there, but there's something sturdy about what she's saying, about how we persevere. The next one I'm going to share is called Foaling Season. And it comes in four parts. It seems that Ada in Kentucky has some interaction with horses and horses figure into some of her poems, as does many other aspects of nature, including animals. And this one is particularly interesting because it talks about mothers and babies and her situation regarding motherhood and a way of understanding life. Fooling season. One. 
In the dew-saturated foot-high blades of grass, we stand among a sea of foals, mare and foal, mare and foal. All over the soft hillside there are twos, small duos ringing harmoniously in the cold, swallows diving in and out, their fabled forked tail, where the story says the fireball has hit it as it flew to bring fire to humanity. Our friend, the Irishman, drives us in the gator to sit amongst them, everywhere doubles of horses still leaning on each other, still nuzzling and curious with each new image. 2. Two female horses, retired mares, separated by a sliding barn door, nose each other. Neither of them will get pregnant again. Their job is to just be a horse. Sometimes, though, they cling to one another, find a friend, and will whine all night for the friend to be released. Through the gate, the noses touch, and you can almost hear, Are you okay? Are you okay? 3. I will never be a mother. That's all. That's the whole thought. I could say it returns me watching the horses, which is true, but I also could say that it came to me as the swallows circled us over and over. Something about that myth of their tail, how generosity is punished by the gods. But isn't that going too far? I saw a mare with her foal, and then many mares with many foals, and I thought simply, I will never be a mother. Four. One foal is a biter, and you must watch him, for he bears his teeth and goes for the soft spot. He's brilliant, leggy, and comes right at me, as if directed by some greater gravity, and I stand firm, and I put my hand out first, rub the long white marking on his forehead, silence his need for biting with affection. I love his selfishness, our selfishness, the two of us testing each other, swallows all around us, and every now and then his teeth come at me once again. He wants to teach me something. He wants to get me where it hurts. The final one I'll read is called ABC Darien for the Future. And I have this explained at sparkmymuse.substack.com, which is my newsletter. I hope you might jump in and join on as a paid subscriber to my newsletter. You can find that at sparkmymuse.com, the link for that in this episode, and I go over what this word means. ABC Darien for the future. All the old gray gods have fallen back to their static realms of myth, cleared from the benches, thrones, dragged kicking to their stone tombs, each one grizzled by their swift exile, frayed, bedraggled, forced to kneel, give up their guns, armor, swords, hand over their passports, global security identification, and be stripped bare. Justice has relegated them to history, kept nothing but the long, rancorous list of crimes, slaughterers all, molded them into dull, cement statues, not to worship, but as a warning most ominous. Here stood greed and his brother pride. Note their glazed, inhumane eyes. Question their puny stature now. How rodent-like. How utterly overthrowable. Still, remember how long they ruled? Tyrannical and blustering, claiming universal power, until the kinder masses voted the callous, thin-lipped 
lizards out? What a day that was. The end of hatred, xenophobia, patriarchal authority. But yes, we waited too long. First, we had to zero out, give up on becoming gods at all. That's a powerful poem, and I'm not going to read it again, but it would be wonderful to listen to this episode again, hear all the poems again, and really let them sink deeply into you, especially this last one, which is about our history, our worship of false gods, and being better, kinder humans. I thank you so much for listening to this episode today. Congratulations to Ada Limon the 24th Poet Laureate of the United States of America. Well done. Please share this episode with someone else today, and I wish you blessing and peace. Mm -hmm.